And so we wait to welcome our king, Lord of Man, as we on the island know him, to take his seat at the top of Tinwald Hill on our national day. When that will be, we do not yet know. We're told he has a very busy schedule. King Charles III. Seventy-eight years ago, his grandfather, King George VI, became the first reigning monarch to preside on the hill in St. John's on this important day. It was an enormous occasion for the Manx. The World War was still to be won in the Pacific. The island still had serving Manx men and Manx women in that theatre. But with the unconditional surrender of German forces in Europe on May 7th, the island had much to celebrate, although, of course, Britain and the rest of the continent were shattered economically after six years of war. But the arrival of the king on Manx shores with his queen, the late Queen Mum, was a great occasion, as it will be when King Charles takes his seat, whenever that will be. Some years ago, my colleague, the late Roger Watterson, reflected on that occasion in 1945. So let's go back once again and enjoy the presence of royalty on this island. Tinwell Day, July 1945, came just two months after the end of the war in Europe. Although the war against Japan was not over and many Manx men and women had not yet returned home, there was a mood for change in the Isle of Man. Tinwald was seeking a revised and a new constitutional relationship with the United Kingdom, and the then Home Secretary, Herbert Morrison, visited the Isle of Man at the end of May to discuss it. The Manx Labour Party debated housing, trade union membership, and full employment, and how it could be achieved. The Douglas Corporation was concerned at the poor boat service to the Isle of Man, and wished Tinwald to ensure that the United Kingdom government quickly released the requisitioned ships. They also wanted to start on the reinstatement of the Douglas Promenade immediately. Newspaper editorials talked about the hush-hush administration and expressed concern for the future. The examiner of the 11th of May observed this. Looking ahead, now that the major war is over and victory has been won, we must devote ourselves to the post-war problems which will quickly be upon us, and we confess we do not feel too happy over the immediate prospects. Procrastination seems to have been the rule in official quarters, and we fear that, as a result of this, we may be caught on the wrong foot, for it does not seem to us that there is any cohesive plan in such an advanced stage as to be available for immediate adoption. True, there is plenty of work waiting to be taken up, but shall we get back early enough the men who are suited to the undertaking of it? We do not want to see a reversion to the old days of winter road schemes and financial relief, and hope that at an early date it may be possible for the War Committee to elaborate its plans and answer a question we were repeatedly asked when we met the boys of the Manx Regiment in Western Europe at Christmas. What is being done for us at home? If some attempt is not made, and quickly, to mature the many embryonic schemes which have been talked about and their possibilities explored, we shall fail in our efforts to give our sons the reward which is their due for the task so nobly done. Housing prices had hit a ramp, to quote Deemster Cowley, and concern was being expressed that the government was paying threepence an hour, just under one and a half p in today's money, more to tradesmen than private businesses. The farmers were worried about the prices for their produce, and there was a big rush for car licences, with 746 more on the road, and a general election for the House of Keys was promised for the spring of 1946. Tinwell budgeted £1,150,000 for the resettlement of returning servicemen, and there was no such thing as a Treasury Minister in 1945. It was the Governor who controlled the budget in those days, with the concurrence of Tinwald. He didn't always get his own way. 
In his budget speech, he said that no government could boast a more solid financial position than that of the Isle of Man in 1945. In the light of this, he put forward a proposal that a further gift be made to the imperial government towards the cost of the war. The gift might have taken the form of a contribution out of the surplus revenue of the income tax fund or a gift of a larger amount to be raised by an Isle of Man loan, the service of which would have fallen on the income tax fund over a period of years. I personally regret, he said, that the branches of the legislature have not so far been able to come to an agreement on this matter. The House of Keys was unanimous. The members wanted the money to go towards putting its economy back into shape, despite what the governor had said, and to look after those returning from serving in the British forces. A recent £250,000 interest-free loan and a further £250,000 gift to the United Kingdom, they thought, was enough. The Lieutenant Governor was King George VI's brother-in-law by marriage, and it had been rumoured for some time that a royal visit during his governorship was likely. The Isle of Man Examiner of the 8th of June 1945 announced the visit on its front page, and in a style typical of the period. Great news. The King and Queen are coming to the Isle of Man on an official visit. Providing conditions are suitable, their Majesties will arrive in the afternoon of Tuesday, July the 3rd, and return on Friday, July the 6th. His Majesty is to preside at the Tinwell Ceremony at St. John's. For a long time there have been whispers that this year's Tinwald was to be graced by the presence of royalty, but the press has had to maintain a rigid silence. Exactly three months ago, His Excellency the Lieutenant Governor took the press into his confidence as to the likelihood of the visit, and sought our cooperation in keeping the matter secret for the time being. Whatever we may have wished to do, defence regulations had to govern our actions, for it was laid down that for security reasons, reference to the movements of royalty could not be made until immediately before such event. Happily, the enemy collapse enabled this regulation to be dispensed with, although the quick movement of events gave rise to the fear that it might not be possible after all for His Majesty to come to the island. His Excellency has been pursuing the matter in the hope that his royal brother-in-law would honour us with a visit during his governorship, and yesterday Earl Granville came back with the great news that His Majesty is to come here, along with the Queen, on July the 3rd and stay until the 6th. Not only was there a royal visit to entertain the Manx people in July, but the summer season had started that month, with the Pallady Dance, now Eatums, proudly presenting Bertini, Blackpool's favourite radio star, together with the Pallet Players and the Rhythm Five, one and six for entry during the week and two and six on Saturdays, when the advertisement said that they provided a buffet with tasty snacks that satisfy. The Villaminina opened for the season with Billy Turnant and his dance orchestra, as he was billed the band of 6,000 broadcasts. Thank you. 
busting out of bushes and the rockin' river pushes every little wheel that wheels beside a mill. June is busting out all over. The feeling is getting so intense that the young Virginia creepers have been hugging the bejeepers out of all the morning glories on the fence because it's June, 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 just because it's June, June, In July 1945, you could choose between drama and musicals, comedy and the classics with Bette Davis, Claude Rains, Merlot Baron, Gary Cooper, George Raft, Loretta Young, Judy Garland, Bob Hope and Bing Crosby, Spencer Tracy and Laurence Olivier and many more, including at the Gaiety, and I quote from the advertisement, up-to-date Western electric talkie equipment with full frontal projection, no less. And who is there? The inevitable George Formby in... Turned out nice again, hasn't it? And so to Tyndall Day. Not only was King George VI at the 1945 ceremony, so was the British Broadcasting Corporation. The Isle of Man examiner reported... Twelve microphones were used by the BBC to broadcast the Tynwald in its home and overseas services. Under Victor Smythe, outside broadcast assistant in North Region, a special team travelled to the island to cover the ceremony, and with a cooperation of the fleet air arm, the records made at Tynwald were flown to Manchester soon after and broadcast in the home service at 6.20 that evening. The BBC archives still hold the original recordings, and the BBC has cooperated with this and supplied Manx Radio with a copy of them. If Manx Radio had been broadcasting in 1945, it might have reported the day's events like this. This is a special Manx Radio newsreel with Mark White. History was made today, July the 5th, 1945. This morning, King George VI personally conducted the Tynwald Ceremony at St John's, the first King of England ever to preside over our ancient Parliament, both on the hill and in the church afterwards. Some spectators at St John's took their positions around the foot of the hill as early as five this morning, and three hours before the ceremony was due to start, thousands were on the fairground. On arrival, the King took a salute from the Royal Naval Guard of Honour and carried out an inspection before laying a wreath at the War Memorial. The church service followed the accustomed form of a shortened matins and was taken by the Reverend Lamb, who is still serving in the RAF and had flown in from his station for the service. The procession for the walk to Tyndall Hill was formed as the congregation left the church. The sword-bearer was Lieutenant Colonel Kissack. When all were seated on the hill, the King directed Deemster Farrant to have the court fenced. The coroner for Glenfaber is J.J. Lewin. Learned Deemster, direct the court to be fenced. Coroner of Glenfaber, direct the, uh, fence the court. I fence this court in the name of our most gracious sovereign lord, the king. I charge that no person do quarrel, brawl, or make any disturbance, and that all persons answer to their names when called. I charge this audience to witness this court is fenced. 
I charge this audience to witness this court is fenced. I charge this whole audience to bear witness this court is now fenced. There was a departure from the usual custom of the coroners handing in their rod of office. This year all six proceeded together up the mound to hand them over to the king before reappointment and then being sworn in. The scene is described by David Southwood. Now the outgoing coroners, having taken off their silk hats, walk up the steps to the top tier of Tinwald Hill to surrender their staves of office to His Majesty the King. This stave represents the old authority that in the days of yore, the coroners who had only one year in office had to surrender their staves at the end of that year. And then the new coroners were given the staves of office as a form of authority. Incoming coroners, take the oath in ancient form to execute your office for the ensuing year and to receive your staves of office from the hands of His Majesty the King. And the first teamster, as you've just heard, has now called on the new coroners to receive their staves of office from His Majesty. And they're just going up to the top of the hill now and are receiving them and going back down again to the bottom. By that book and by the holy contents thereof, and by the wonderful works that God hath miraculously wrought in heaven above and in the earth beneath in six days and seven nights, you shall, without respect of favor, of friendship, love, or gain, consanguinity, or affinity, envy, or malice, well and truly execute the respective officers of coroner of the sheeting of Ben Faber, of the sheeting of Michael, of the sheeting of Air, of the sheeting of Garth, of the sheeting of Middle, and of the sheeting of Russian for the ensuing year. So help you God. The King then instructed that the 15 Acts which had received royal assent during the previous year be promulgated in English and in Manx. Deemster Farrant read the abstracts of the Acts in English and the Reverend Callan in Manx. Deemster and Reverend Leather, I exhort you to proclaim to the people in ancient form such laws as have been enacted during the past year and which have received my assent. Abstract of Acts of Tinwell. Number one, the Workmen's Compensation Temporary Increases Act, 1944. The object and purpose of this act is to increase temporarily the supplementary allowances payable to workmen under the Workmen's Compensation Act 1919. Irunen, in Slathus Aelia Obrien, 
Fishakhtin Tamiltak, Nihi Jeg, Jer Estide, Panagna Esakush, James Slattis Shaw, the Vudaka Rish Tamilt, Nathurton Vudit, Ekit the Aubrian, Pone Slattis, Aelia Aubrian, Nihi Jeg, Nijeg. Number two, the Port Aaron Biological Station. Following the reading of the laws, the King held an investiture at which 43 persons, including members of all three services, received honours and decorations. Following the investiture and the traditional three cheers for the King, the procession reformed and returned to the chapel, where a short sitting of Tinwald Court was held, presided over by His Majesty. Tinwald will adjourn to the chapel and complete such business as remains to be transacted. Uh, Mr. Speaker and gentlemen of the House of Keys, the first business before us in the chapel is the captioning of the acts I just promulgated on Tinwald Hill. And I have given my assent to the following acts of the Pensions Increase Act of 1945, the House of Industry Act of 1945, and the Income Tax Amendment Act of 1945. The King then addressed the Manx people. Now, the Queen and I are deeply touched by the warmth of the welcome we have received. It gives us great pleasure to visit your beautiful island and to be among my loyal Manx people. Of the ancient and dignified order of the promulgation of laws on Tinwald Hill, which you have witnessed, a date from long before a written record, but has for centuries preserved its characteristic ritual from the time of the Norse kings to the present day. And never before has the King of England been present in person at this most interesting ceremony. And it is a particular satisfaction to me that the occasion is the first continual day following the end of the war in, in Europe. In bringing this gigantic conflict to a victorious conclusion, 
people of this little island have played their part by land, by sea, and by air. Your homes have been spared of the ravages of war. But, in common with all my peoples, you have had great anxiety. You are now faced with the task of rebuilding your prosperity. It is my heartfelt wish that under God's providence you may enjoy the blessings of peace. Your Excellency, my Lord Bishop, a gentleman of the Council, Mr. Speaker, a gentleman of the Keys, that concludes our business for today. Tinwald is adjourned till 11 o'clock on next Tuesday at its usual place of meeting. The council will now retire and the keys will remain to transact such business as remains Before that brought to an end the Tinwald proceedings. Later in the day, the King and Queen attended a naval parade, followed by a garden party on the lawns of Government House, attended by over 600 guests. The examiner reported the royal visit on its front page of July the 6th. The visit of the King and Queen to the Isle of Man this week has been a big success and has given great joy to all Manx people and residents in the island. The weather has not been too well behaved. Manannan's royal mantle of sea mist, which upset arrangements from the outset and necessitated a sea journey for their majesties in place of the proposed trip by air, has persisted during their visit and deprived them of the opportunity to see much of the Manx countryside. Everywhere they have gone, their majesties have been met by enthusiastic crowds who have, in no uncertain manner, demonstrated the loyalty there is in the island for the royal sovereign. Miss Jean Thornton Dewsbury paraded in Ramsey with her girl guides. I was out with the guides in Parliament Square and um, rather to my horror she signalled that she was coming to speak to us. So she did and asked what company we were and she smiled and um, looked so kindly at each girl each one thought she'd specially spoken to her you know it was very nice like that and I had one little girl with me who was very undersized for her age she'd been very delicate very ill and hadn't gone to school until she was about 10 and then she joined guides and she'd been to camp and she'd become a guide in camp and um, she spoke to them all. Then she moved on down the line and when I looked down, this little girl was looking up at me and her face was absolutely transfigured. She was radiant and she said, Oh, Captain, 
used to call the guide as captains in those days. Captain, I am glad I was enrolled as a guide before the Queen came, which I thought was rather nice. Manx Radio's Jim Kane was travelling to St John's on Tinwell Day, and he was in the company of Deemster Henry Callow. Tinwell Day 50 years ago remains a vivid memory for me for one special reason, although I have to confess I can't remember a great deal of the actual ceremony itself. Not surprising, really, as we missed half of it. When I say we, I mean my friend Henry and myself. Henry, later on in life destined to become Deemster Henry Callow, he was home on leave from the Army Intelligence Corps, and the two of us decided to attend the 1945 Timwold, graced as it was by the presence of King George VI and Queen Elizabeth. So it was we set off on our bicycles for St John's. Henry resplendent in his army uniform, and I wearing my civil defence ARP tunic and my navy beret. We'd left our journey to the very last minute, as usual, so much so that at Greba we were overtaken by the official cars and we had to pull off the road. There was no one else in sight but Henry and me, and as the royal car came into view, we came smartly to the salute, which the king, in his naval uniform, acknowledged. After the procession had swept by, Henry and I continued on our bikes at a leisurely pace to St John's. We arrived too late for much of the ceremony, but we were happy in the knowledge that for one brief, fleeting moment, we had had the king and queen all to ourselves. Right, now on to Willie Neal. He was 13 years of age in 1945, and he was a pupil at Hanover Street School. Three weeks before the king and the queen came to the island, Mr T.C. Carras, who I believe at the time was the headmaster of Murray's Road School, came round all the schools to take us singing Alan Vannon, the Manx National Anthem and the English National Anthem. It was to be done in the Villa Marina Gardens. All the children from Douglas and Mr T.C. Carras went round them all. In between times, our own headmaster, Mr Taggart, known to by the boys as Knockers Taggart, he was teaching us to do the singing and all. There was, uh, there was, we had two or three sessions a week. And then we all came together and they had a rehearsal and the afternoon before the king and the queen were coming to meet the children and all the children were taken into the grounds and you were shown where you were to stand, the Ville Marina. And then on the morning that, we, that the king and the queen was meeting the children, we were all marched, we had to go to school first, the registers were read and we'd sang our hymn and the prayers, which was always done. And then we all made our way over to Ville Marina. As we were, well, we walked down, I can remember it very well, we walked down John Street and all the people came out and to see the kids going. And we marched down Nelson Street and all the people there in Nelson, all houses in Nelson Street, they all came out of the doors. We marched past Harden's Chip Shop down Drumgold Street and along Strand Street. And when we were getting just oh, into Castle Street, we could see St Thomas's School coming down ahead of us. And then we all went then into the Villa Marina and we all took our positions. It's said that day that there was, I would say there would be maybe somewhere in the region, maybe six, seven hundred children. And it's said that day that when, the, when they sang Ellen Bannon and they sang all the verses, that there was men working out for the corporation and other people too on the promenade. And I reckon there wasn't a dry high on the prom because the way the wind was, they could hear the kids singing. Ellen Vannon. You remember the King and the Queen very well walking through all the children. And when it was over, uh, Mr. Wilkinson was the uh, Director of Education and he announced 
that the king had given us two days extra holiday. So that was Timble Fair Day and two days as well. So it was really good. sung by the Manx Festival Chorus brings this special Tynwald Day programme to an end. We've looked back at the music, the press reports, BBC recordings and personal memories of 50 years ago when King George VI presided over Tynwald. The press reports were read by Brian Crookall. The BBC archive recordings of Royal Tynwald 1945 were introduced by Mark White. I'm Roger Watterson and our producer was Charles Webster. On behalf of us all, may I wish you a very enjoyable Tynwald Day holiday. A sentiment, of course, we echo here at Manx Radio today. That was the late Roger Watterson's programme on the visit, while war was still on in the Pacific, of King George VI to the island, King Charles' grandfather to Timwald. You'll have heard the king there being interrupted by a train's whistle. A further piece of history there. The trains, in 1945, ran through St John's. We wait for the chance to welcome the new king to our island. I'm John Moss, and I'll be at St John's with the team for this year's ceremony at Timwald. Gaukarel.